The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. Acts 16 verse 34. Welcome to Canaanbound Podcast, a podcast designed to offer the Christian rest during life's journey. Canaanbound Podcast features devotional segments by pastors and others serving in the Wisconsin Evangelical Lutheran Synod. My name is Philip Wells, and this is episode 123. We begin this week with To Tell the Story by Luke Italiano. Tonight he dies. God has decreed it. The jailer had heard of Paul, of course. Pretty much everyone in Philippi had. Some preached from Palestine. He'd gotten a following, worshipped some god. Been around, what, two years now? And then one day, a mob carried Paul and his preaching buddy Silas to the jail. Secure him on the inside! Heaviest chains! They go on trial tomorrow! And the jailer knew his business. He locked them up tight, in her cell, didn't ask questions. And that's when the jailer knew there was something wrong with these two. The entire time, they're singing. Well, the jailer ignored it. Strange, sure, but it was better than getting cursed at or attacked like normal. The thing that unnerved the jailer most, though, was the other prisoners. They weren't trying to rile the newbies. They listened. He checked the chains. He checked the doors. Prisoners secure. Time to go home for the day. His wife had dinner waiting. His children were ready to report what they had done for that day. His mother-in-law complained all through dinner, just like normal. He slept that night with his wife in his arms. And he is awakened by the earth itself trying to kill him. The room violently shakes, trying to hurtle their bed out the window. His wife screams. The prisoners, if they escape, he's a dead man, and his family too, all dead. The earth falls silent. It's rage past. His wife sobs beside him in the sudden silence. The jailer, though, he leaps out of bed, sprinting for the stairs to the jail. He grabs his belt and sword, ready to strike down anyone trying to escape. He bursts out of the house. The prison! In the shaking of the earth, in, in the shaking of the foundations, every door burst open. Every single door. He draws his sword. It's shaking. Tonight, he dies. And if the prisoners have already escaped, if they've escaped, the jailer is responsible, and his superiors will make sure he pays, and that his family pays. That Paul, that that Silas, they, they were attached to someone with power, someone with enough power to drive out a demon, someone who was displeased with the jailer, someone who shook the entire prison, not only to save his followers but to show his fury that someone would dare imprison his followers. The jailer had displeased a god. His best option. His best option? He can't face his superiors. He can't catch the prisoners. 
he turns the sword on himself. If he drives the sword through his stomach, it'll look like the prisoners got him on the way out. His family won't be responsible. It just means he needs to kill himself. God has promised. Tonight, he dies. The jailer braces himself, takes the hilt of the sword, and a voice cuts through the deathly silence of the night. Don't harm yourself. We're all here. He drops his blade. It's not possible. That voice? It's Paul's. The one who should be angry at him for what he did. The one whose God shook the prison. The jailer calls, summons, screams for lights. Finally, the guards show up, lanterns in hand. They race through the prison. Every prisoner is there. Every single one. The jailer stumbles to Paul and Silas's cell. This is the man who speaks for the God who is angry with me. This is the man I must appease. And the jailer falls on his face in the dirt and filth of the cell. What must I do? What must I do to be saved? What must I do to clear my name before your God? What must I do so you're not angry at me? What must I do? Paul and Silas answer, Believe in the name in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. The Bible says, Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his household. Paul tells them, You've seen the wrath of God. You know that you've failed. You know that you've done wrong. And his fury is great. But this Jesus, who is God's son, lived the life you never did. He never tortured his prisoners. He never hurt anyone unjustly. His anger came only at injustice. And when he died, he exchanged himself. He put himself in the line of his father's fury. He faced the judgment you've earned. There is no punishment left. And at that hour of the night, the jailer and his entire family, they die. God keeps his promise. They die. They are drowned. The Bible says, At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds, and immediately he and all his family were baptized. It's too late to go to the river, but there's water enough here in pitchers left over from supper. It's water enough. And Paul and Silas pour water over the jailer, and they speak the words, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And as surely as the jailer met the wrath of God in the earthquake, he meets the wrath of God again. And God works through the promise he has made, through water and word, and he drowns the jailer. He takes the man the jailer was, that sinful nature, that enemy of God, and God releases all his pent-up fury and drowns him in baptism 
the jailer is united with the death of Christ, and he is raised again in new life. He is not who he was. The old has gone. The new has come. The jailer is totally new, united not only with the death of Jesus, but in his resurrection as well. Here, the jailer has met with God in water and word, in drowning and new life. Here the jailer sees who God is, one who is pure and holy and cannot stand sin, but took on the sin he hated to save us who sinned. And now in baptism, the jailer is God's son too. And it's not just the jailer, his wife. His children, they all drown, they all die, and they are all reborn by water and the word. The Bible says, He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. Brothers, sisters, remember the day you died. Baptism isn't just some ceremony. It's the day God drowned you and brought you to a new life. Celebrate the life he gave you on that day. And this story is true. And now a song from Chris Dreisbach, One True God. Yeah, I feel 
the devil, he's got a hold on me. But there is one true God, and there's a prince of darkness in this world. But there is only one true God. little lamb If you think you've heard this one before, that's because I am that blessed man But there is one true God and his footstool is this world and now I know that there is one true God one true God Now we join Pastor Timothy Smith with God's Word for You. God's Word for You, Job 39, verses 9 to 12. Will the wild ox consent to serve you? Will it stay by your manger at night? Can you hold it to the furrow with a harness? Will it, will it till the valleys behind you? Will you rely on it for its great strength? Will you leave your heavy work to it? Can you trust it to haul your grain? And bring it to your threshing floor. Now, okay, in the King James Version, this animal, which is in Hebrew the ra'im, is called the unicorn. The NIV calls it the wild ox. Now, in fact, this unicorn appears nine times in the King James translation. It's really a wild ox. Um, it's not the legendary uh, horned horse. Which uh, and, and this wild ox is called the rimu in Akkadian. And it's known as the aurochs in more recent times. The aurochs has been extinct, actually, since the last female died in Poland in 1627. The aurochs were massive. They stood six feet high at the shoulder. It was six feet across as well from shoulder to shoulder. And, and it had downward-pointing horns. And imagine this terrifying animal, which, which loved to graze in forests all over Europe and Asia and, and, and Africa. And in Moses' time, a few hundred years perhaps after Job's day, Pharaoh Thutmose III claimed that he had killed 75 of these animals on a royal hunt. must have been quite an adventure. God invites us to compare this massive creature, which is like a buffalo on steroids, with the, with the things a domestic ox would do. Will he stay where you want him to? Can you trust him to plow? Would you hitch your wagon to this thing and hope your harvest would be safe and not go galloping away into the woods? The animals that God brings before Job here are getting bigger and more ferocious all the time, with the possible humorous exception we'll see in the next devotion. But a giant ox? God is is in control there too. All of these things are leading Job to understand that God himself is far more powerful than the lion or the rooster or whatever, any kind of wild animal. At the same time, God is the one who watches over us, who protects us, and whose mercy endures forever. Now, that's the end of this particular devotion. But in case you wondered, and some people do, 
as you read through this list of animals and God, as God questions Job, um, have you wondered, and some people have, whether the author intended for there to be a relationship between these animals and something else. There are 12 of them. Do they relate to something different? Is there a relationship between the 12 animals and the 12 tribes of Israel? Of course, in Job's time, there weren't 12 tribes of Israel, but later there would be. And in the author's time, living maybe around the time of Solomon, of course, there were 12 tribes of Israel. And although some other mention, animals are mentioned in passing, like the locust coming up in the section about the horse in verse 20, and there's a stork used in comparison with the ostrich in verse 13, there are 12 specific animals that figure into these questions. There is an ibis, a rooster, a lion, a raven, that's four, a mountain goat, a doe, a wild donkey, a wild ox, that's four more, that's eight, an ostrich, a horse, a hawk, and an eagle. That's four more, that's 12. And they all come before God's big questions about the behemoth and the Leviathan. Now, both Jacob and Moses made comparisons between the 12 tribes of Israel and different animals. But they don't quite line up to all the different animals here, but some of them do. So let's just see how the comparison lines up. Now, Joseph's comparison is in Genesis 49. And the comparison Moses makes is toward the end of Deuteronomy in chapter 33. And I will just remind us of what the 12 tribes were. And I'll compare them to Job's list, although I'm, I'm just saying that Job doesn't say these are the 12 tribes of Israel, but still. The first three animals in Job's list do not have any comparison that we know of, but the ibis, rooster, and the raven um, uh, uh, would then line up possibly with the first of the three sons, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, but enough of that. Judah is called a lion or a lion's cub by Joseph, and the next animal in Job's list is the lion. Now, Isaacar is called by Jacob a donkey, and the next animal in Job's list is the donkey. Um, the next animal, mountain goat, doesn't line up with anything, but Zebulun would have been the next animal. Now, in Gad is compared by Moses to the lioness, and yet we have Job's bringing in the ostrich. Asher doesn't compare to anything. Job's next one is the horse. Dan is given a different comparison by everybody. Jacob calls Dan a serpent. Moses calls Dan a lion's cub. And the next animal in Job's list is a hawk. But Naphtali is called a doe by Jacob. And a doe is the next animal in Job's list. Joseph compares, or rather Joseph is compared by Moses to a wild ox and wild ox was this comparison in Job. Then Benjamin is compared to a wolf by his dad, but the next animal in Job's list is eagle. So as you see, um, the names of the creatures in Job correspond a few times with the animal comparisons made by Moses and by Joseph, and in the same places. There's no reason to take the animals here in Job as references to the specific tribes of Israel. In fact, there doesn't appear to be any reference at all to Israel throughout the book of Job. And the reason for this is probably, as I've said, that Israel was too new a family when the events of Job took place. And we're perhaps in Egypt at this time. Nevertheless, I thought I'd bring it up. In Christ, I'm Pastor Tim Smith. This is God's word for you. 
We end our time together this week by listening to a song from the Branches Band. This song is based on Psalm 142, Set Me Free. I will cry, Lord have mercy, I will cry, Lord have mercy, I will cry, Lord have mercy, Lord, I will cry. Hear my plea, I'm in trouble, hear my plea, I'm in trouble, hear my plea, I'm in trouble, Lord, hear my plea. Say you're my refuge, I will say you're my refuge, I will say you're my refuge, Lord, I will say Rescue me from my demons, rescue me from my demons, rescue me from my demons, Lord, rescue me. Set me free from my prison, set me free from my prison, set me free from my prison, Lord, set me free. I will sing all your praises, I will sing all your praises, I will sing all your praises, Lord, I will sing, Lord, I will sing. You have been listening to episode 123 of Canaan Bound Podcast. This podcast was first shared in September of 2017. CanaanBoundPodcast.com contains show notes and links to the artists featured in this episode. You can also find old shows and easily share them with friends. We'd like to thank Chris Dreisbach and Branches Band for allowing us to share their music with you this week. Intro and outro music for this episode has been graciously provided by Coin A. Once again, my name is Philip Wells. It was a privilege to be your host for this episode. We encourage you to visit wells.net to find a Wells ministry location near you. Thank you for listening. <laughs>